All right. Welcome to Matthew. Jesus is a rabbi. Uh, what we're planning on doing this semester, semester, I guess, I guess it is a semester, uh, is uh, kind of take look at the book of Matthew, walk through the book of Matthew, looking at it from a Jewish perspective. Because a lot, uh, there's a lot of information in the book that we sometimes skip over from a Western perspective and trying to do it as a, from a Jewish perspective is we'll try to get some more depth to the book. Uh, the one thing that we always did, we did last fall that we'll do again is we'll start just like a good Jewish class. We're going to start with the Shema. Everyone stand. This is a prayer that every good Jew said every morning and every night. And then if you're a Pharisee, you said it at 3 p.m. just in case you forgot the morning or night. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. And so every, every Jewish official uh, event started with the Shema. All right, let's do a little review. This week we're going to kind of set the book up so that we're going to start going through next week, chap, basically chapter section by section over the next 16 weeks. Uh, I'm going to teach, uh, Stephen Ramsey's going to teach, my daughter Becca Benny are, are going to teach, and we're going to kind of off and I'll show you the schedule at the end. So if you like me and you want to come, if you don't like me, you know what week's not to come. Uh, oh, sorry. So we're going to do a little history, geography, rulers, and language. Because to understand the environment that Matthew was writing in, it is not the environment that when we think of the Jewish people, we think of the first five books of the Old Testament, Abraham or David or whatever. That's not the environment that that Matthew was writing in. Jewish eras, uh, kind of the starting, the, the Jewish people, if you start in the Old Testament, you have the Egyptian slavery era, which is roughly 300 years, 1800 to 1500 BC. There's a little variance in there depending on who you believe is which Egyptian king. But sometime around 1500, you have the rise of Moses. And then, you know, the people leave. Uh, Moses is a big uh, personality in the history of Judaism. And when we get to it, you'll see actually the book of Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses, is a, is a theme. So Moses brings them out, they cross into, you know, they wander for 40 years, they cross into the, uh, the promised land sometime around 1500. Uh, they conquer the promised land. They're a confederation at that point. There's no kings. Uh, they're, they're each tribe. God directly rules through uh, a set of uh, prophets and direct revelation. Sometime around 1040, give or take about two years, the people say, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And that's, you know, Saul is the first king, then David, then Solomon, and then things go really bad. And then there's a bunch of names that are really hard to, to pronounce. And they, the kingdom split and all sorts of things happen. Uh, so for 
the kingdom of Israel, which is, or Judah, which is the southern kingdom, goes pretty well to 609 BC. In 609, you, you've got the Babylonians come by, conquer it. Uh, this is in the Old Testament. God tells them, because you have disobeyed me, I'm going to take you away for 70 years. This is the 70 years that go to Babylon. Uh, the Babylonians get conquered by the Persians. They come back home. Uh, Hellenistic is Alexander the Greek and all his followers. Then the Hasmoneans are the Jews and then the Romans. That kind of walk you through 2,000 years there in 30 seconds. <laughs> there will not be a test on this, by the way. All right. So when you start talking about it, this is where the Jews at their peak, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, control this area. When the Babylonians come and take them away, they take them from here all the way over here to Babylon. The, important, the, the way the Babylonians ran is they relocated everybody. They figured if you weren't living in your hometown, you were less likely to rebel. So that when they conquered someone, they moved everybody. And so they did it in stages for the Jews. Uh, but basically, the, almost everyone gets relocated to Babylon for 70 years. That's important because while you're there, two things happen, or three things happen. Number one, they get a new language. They spoke Hebrew prior to the relocation. The Babylonians all speak Aramaic. They force everyone to learn Aramaic. So the Jews then who were born in Babylon all became Aramaic speakers, which means when they write, they write in Aramaic. Uh, this is really confusing because Aramaic and Hebrew are very, very close. In fact, there's an argument going on of do, do Hebrews use Aramaic letters to write or do the Aramaic use Hebrews letters to write? Because they're, they're, they're sister line, they're like uh, a modern equivalent would be Spanish and Italian. If you speak one, you can kind of understand the other and vice versa. Uh, and so a Hebrew and Aramaic. But Aramaic becomes the, the language of everybody. They have new leadership. The Babylonians take away all the royalty and they never come back. So if you were royalty, you went to Babylon and you stayed there. Uh, probably were executed at some point. Uh, so when you see in the rise in history, the priests now become the preeminent leaders of the Hebrew people. Uh, and the new place of worship. The temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. So the synagogue arises as where people essentially worship, where they, where they read the scriptures, where they memorize the scriptures, each community develops a synagogue. And there, there's lots of rules on how you create a synagogue, how many men you need, exactly how synagogue worship runs. We'll get into that a little bit later on in the book of Matthew. 539, uh, the Persians conquer. Uh, the Persians have a different rule. They send everyone back home. They, they literally restructure the entire Babylonian empire send everyone back to where they started from and, and basically give you a little bit of self-rule. So in, in three waves, all the Jews go from Babylon back to Jerusalem. But what happens is a lot of Jews don't go. They stay in Babylon. They stay, uh, 
Jews historically were very educated people relative to everybody else because it was expected that you memorize, if you're a man, that you would memorize a large part of the Torah. And so a lot of Jews could read and write. And so as a result, they tended to be hired as scribes, as bookkeepers, and so they get scattered through the kingdoms as uh, work as employees. And so you see that Jews get scattered through this entire Persian kingdom. Most of them come back to Jerusalem, but a lot of them do not. And they get, they're all literally all over. And we get in, if you were listening to uh, last week, uh, Josh's sermon, at, uh, Day of Pentecost, they list all the places where Jews had come from for the Day of Pentecost. And they're from, they are literally from here all the way over here, to, which is Spain. So there are, there are observant Jews throughout the entire kingdom. So this is Persia up, up for about 200 years. Uh, what they get out of Persia is, A, they get a new temple because they're sent back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. It's, uh, that's the latter part of the Old Testament. You'll see they cry about how poor it looks compared to Solomon's temple. But they rebuild the temple and the temple again becomes the center of Jewish worship. And they get some local control. The Persians don't care what you do as long as you don't rebel and you pay your taxes, which is gonna be a recurrent theme when you see all these people who take over the different uh, areas. So the Jews are pretty good. They're in Jerusalem. They've got a temple. They have a priesthood. The priests become uh, the the guys will talk about the priests become the priest kings. So there's no separate king because the royalty never comes back from Babylon. So the priests function as the kings. The priests become the point person for the Persians to talk to. So when the Persians have a problem, they go to the high priest. So he becomes the most powerful man in uh, Judea at that time in Jerusalem. All right. 333, who comes along? Our friend Alexander the Great. He conquers the entire Persian Empire in 10 years. And then he dies. Uh, so, he, 333 he conquers everything, 321 he dies. So, what happens is, uh, for the next, you see about 150-ish years, 70-ish years, the Greeks control <coughs> Jerusalem and Judea. And so, uh, just to throw some names up, uh, the Ptolemies and Seleucids are two generals of, his, his kingdom breaks into four parts. By his four, he has no children. And so his four most powerful generals take control of the whole, per, what was the Persian Empire, now the, the Hellenistic Greek Empire. Uh, the Ptolemies get Egypt. Cleopatra, you've all heard the name, right? Aside from the movies and everything. Cleopatra is the family name of the women of the Ptolemies. So you have to be careful when you read Cleopatra that you know which Cleopatra they're talking about. Uh, the Cleopatra existed in, in 321 is not the Cleopatra that is Julius Caesar's girlfriend. That is a great-great-granddaughter. But throughout history, Cleopatras will show up. 
and every time they show up, there's problems. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, around 200, so Alexander the Great has them, 321, the kingdom breaks up. The Ptolemies, Egypt-based, control Judea from 321 to about 200. There's battles fought back and forth between the Seleucids and the, and the Ptolemies over the control. Now, here's the thing. We've always kind of been heard that everyone wants Judea, right? Everyone wants Jerusalem. It's the world's greatest city. No. Nobody wants Jerusalem. What they want is the Via Mera, which is a road that runs from Egypt up the coast. That's what everybody wants. They want to control the road, because if you control the road, you control the money. And more importantly, you control the wheat that comes out of Egypt that feeds the rest of the empire. It just so happens that if you control the road, you control Jerusalem. So Jerusalem goes under controls that the Seleucids would have it for a while, the Ptolemies would have it, then they'd go back and forth. Finally, in 200, the Seleucids, who are based in Syria up north, control Jerusalem permanently. Well, as permanent as it gets. Goes along really good to Antichus IV Epiphanes shows up. For reasons that we have no earthly idea, the Greeks let the, let the Jews be Jews. They let them sacrifice, the temple runs, they don't care. Once, you, once again, keep the peace, pay your taxes. Antichus IV Epiphanes shows up and he decides that he does not like the Jews and that the Jews need to quit being Jews. So he marches to Jerusalem, he takes a herd of pigs, walks into the temple, and sacrifices pigs on the altar, and then makes the priest eat the pigs. So, you know, if you know Jews, you know, pigs are unclean. Uh, you could not, and then he also bans circumcision, the sign of being a Jew. Uh, you could not have lit the dynamite and thrown it in the room with any more power than what he does. He says, you can't be circumcised. The one thing that sets you apart from everyone around you, you can no longer practice being a Jew, and let me defile the altar in your holiest of holy places. And so he literally lights the fuse uh, for bad things. What did the Jews get, out the, get from the Greeks? They got a new language, Greek. Uh, so the educated people spoke Greek. The uneducated people continued with Aramaic. Hebrew becomes a religious language. If you're super religious, you might know Hebrew. But if you went to the store, you spoke Aramaic. If you talked to the government, you spoke Greek. Uh, so most of the people, the only people who really spoke Greek were the wealthy, and the priest. Because once again, the priests have to interact with the government. So they speak Greek. And then new political parties show up, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, these guys arise during the Greeks. The Sadducees are the priests. The Sadducees, they're, they're, we're not going to get in at this point to a lot of their theology, but basically the Sadducees are the Greeks, or that priest. They deal with the Greeks. They become Hellenized. So all the Sadducees speak Greek. You start seeing the high priest, which had very Hebrew names before, showing up with names 
like Jason, which is a very Greek name, and uh, other Greek names, and they start naming their kids Greek. They start doing Greek things like uh, they create a gymnasium in Jerusalem. Uh, they start to turn their schools into Greek-type schools. Uh, so, of course, if you have one party that says one thing, what's the American system tell us? What happens? Another party is going to show up, right? Pharisees. The Pharisees are hardcore, no. Whatever the Sadducees were for, the Pharisees were against, and vice versa. So the Pharisees were very hardcore. Let's get back to what the Torah says. Uh, and so you see these arise during this period of time of, of, of when the Greeks were in charge. So in 164 BC, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes comes down, sacrifices the altar. Uh, there's a guy named Judas Maccabee, who is a priest, who does not take this well, to the point of uh, he is in a small village. They come into the local priest. Uh, they tell the local priest, you're going to sacrifice a pig, and uh, you're going to eat the pig. Judas is the senior priest. He says, no, I'm not. And so the, uh, the, the troops say, we're going to kill everybody. We're going to kill everyone in this village if you do not. And Judas says, not going to do it. And then another priest goes, I'll do it. I'll save the... So at that point, Judas pulls out a sword that he's got in his robes, kills the other priest. All his family is around the soldiers. They all pull knives out that they've got, kill all the soldiers. They start a rebellion, the Maccabean Rebellion. They end up kicking all the guys out. Israel, or the Jewish people become an independent country for about 100 years. Uh, so you see they, this map, they started out in the deep green and then they expanded out, expanded out. This is important for a couple of reasons. Indumia is down here. Indumia is not Jewish. But uh, the Maccabees decided, because it worked so well for the Greeks to come down and make them Greek, that they're gonna make all these people Jewish. So they go down to Indumia and force them all to become Jews. The reason that's important is there's a family you're going you're to learn about in the book of Matthew called the Herod. Herod is Indumean. So he becomes a proselyte, his family becomes proselyte Jews. He does not like Jews after that. Because you can imagine, because what do you, have, you have to be circumcised, you've got to change all your thing, you've got to bow down to the Jews. He does not like that. His dad becomes, is the king of the MUD. Indumians, Herod is his son. So he's going to show up big time in the book of Matthew throughout the whole thing. Uh, so about 100 years, the Jews are independent. Now, they're independent in an area that no one else really wants. The only, you know, well, he said the only thing people want is this little road that runs through here. And you see late in their time as they conquer that road. And that's what triggers the next people who comes along. So during the Hasmonean Empire, what did you get? They got independence. And uh, a new political party shows up again, the Essenes. The Essenes were a splinter party off the Pharisees. They think the Pharisees don't go far enough. 
So if what you know about Pharisees, the Essenes are even farther to the right, to the point that the Essenes withdraw from uh, society. They create their own communities. And so what we know about that is a lot of the, the writings we have from this time period are from Essene communities. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are from Essene communities. And so they have, so that you basically have three major parties this time, the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the priests, they have all the money, and they have all the power. The Pharisees are very smart guys who are not priests. And then the Essenes kind of say, we're just backing out of everything, and they withdraw from community and create their own homes. So this last 100 years, uh, and like everything else, the Sadducees and the Pharisees get into a fight. Uh, what they fight about is who gets to appoint the high priest. Because it turns out they both kind of have people in their parties that could be high. You have to be a descendant of Aaron to be a high priest. They both have people who could be high priest. So they get into a fight. And they do something really stupid. Uh, they, during this time period, Julius Caesar has marched and conquered Egypt. Everyone wants Egypt because it's a nice place to live. It's the breadbasket of the world. Uh, it has tons of food. Julius Caesar sails back to Rome in 63 BC. Pompey is his number one general. He tells him to walk, to march up the Via Mera, control the road, because he understands that the road is everything. It's either by sea or by road. The road is everything. As Pompey is walking, walking, marching by Jerusalem, one of the political parties, it's not clear from history which one it was, uh, sent messengers to Pompey and said, hey, come into the fight on our side. We want you to kick the other guys out of Jerusalem so we can be high priest and we can be rulers. And we know how much it cost them. One ton of gold, eight tons of silver. Because the Romans keep great records. And so Pompey knew that Julius Caesar was going to ask him, how much did you make on this? So he keeps records. And so Pompey comes in to Jerusalem and kicks them both out. He just goes, I'm not going to deal with either one of you. He kicks everyone out of power, and he now makes what was the Maccabean Empire Jewish. It becomes a province of uh, Jewish, Roman, because a province of Rome. So 63 BC uh, to 70 AD, which is basically the, the scope of the book of Matthew. Uh, so once again, two rules show back up. Pay your taxes, keep the peace. If you do those two things, the Romans do not care what you do. As long as you, if you do not do either one of those things, the Romans care a lot. And uh, so for various political reasons, Herod the Great gets appointed in charge of the old Jewish empire. Once again, I said he's Imudian, he was forced to convert. So the Romans go, oh, you're Jewish, you're a king, we're gonna make you the king. He hates the Jews, he hates them. Uh, but he becomes king. He lives from 63 to 4 BC. So he rules for 40, 59 years. Uh, the best part is he was actually a really, really good administrator. He hated the Jews. He was a really good administrator. He built stuff. 
I, there are aqueducts of his still existing today. He built uh, palaces, he built fortresses. Uh, he was unbelievably politically uh, astute. Uh, everyone, everyone, Julius Caesar and his, you know, his friend who turns into his enemy, Mark Anthony, they have a civil war. Uh, the best part about this, Herod the Great was friends with Mark Anthony, grew up with him. He backs Mark Anthony during the Civil War. Who wins the Civil War? Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, right. Herod, as soon as he finds out that Mark Anthony is dead, gets on a ship and sails to Rome, where Julius Caesar is at. Now, typically backing the wrong side in a Civil War gets your head cut off. You know that whole thing about keep the peace and pay your taxes? He's going to get his head cut off. He is such a great salesman, he convinces Julius Caesar that, he actually, we have a letter that he wrote that says, I was the best friend ever to Mark Anthony. I backed him, even though you were the, king, you were the emperor, I backed Mark Anthony because I was a great friend. Now that he's dead, I'll be that good a friend to you. And Julius Caesar keeps him as king. So I mean, he, is a, he could sell you know, refrigerators to Eskimos, right? He is just unbelievably suave. The fact that he did not get his head chopped off for back in the wrong side. And so he rules for multiple years. He dies in 4 BC, his sons uh, split the kingdom, uh, and the proconsul is appointed. This is important as you go through the Gospels. Herod is a family name. So when they talk about Herod, it's not always Herod the Great. Herod the Great only shows up in Luke, the birth story of Jesus, Luke 1, 2, Matthew 2. Every other Herod is not Herod the Great. He's dead in 4 BC. When he dies, his kingdom's split into four parts. Yes, Herod was not a nice person. He killed most of his children because he thought they were, they were threats to him. These four just happened to be alive when he died. So that's why they became rulers in his stead. Sometimes accidents of history, you just have to outlive the guy. Uh, so you have Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Uh, Aristobulus dies during this period. We think of not just like uh, infection or something. He, did, it was not, he was not killed. Uh, so when you hear it, in the gospel, when you hear the word Herod, you're talking about Herod Antipas, except for the birth story. That's always Herod Antipas. Philip uh, is in Luke 3, Matthew 14, when they talk about, they'll talk about Philip. That is Herod Philip. Uh, and then uh, Archelaus is only in there once. When, uh, for different reasons, when uh, Aristobulus dies, Herod Agrippa I, becomes uh, Herod. That's, so in Acts, you're taught all the Acts is, in Acts you're talking about Herod Agrippa I. The interesting part is uh, Herodias, who is the daughter of Aristobulus, marries Philip. Then Antipas gets more power, so she goes over to him. She is the one that John the Baptist, when we get into that story, 
talks about you married your brother's wife. He doesn't mention that it's your niece, it's your, also your niece, but it's your brother's wife. That is Herodias. So when you hear some of these names, that's, they're, they're literally all, we said they're all related, they are, they're all brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews. Uh, and then later, just to throw in, because you're going to get into Acts when uh, upstairs and things, Agrippa II is at the end of the book of Acts. His wife is Bernice, who is also maybe his sister. We're not sure. It may be a niece. Uh, and then the other daughter is Drusilla, who marries Felix. In the book of Acts, when Paul is sent to Rome, he appears before Felix. Felix is married to a Herod. So like I said, it, you get all these personalities in here interacting. So when you, you write some of this, when you read some of this, uh, just keep that in mind. All these guys are really related. So it's not like they're, they're as just independent entities that we're thinking about. All right, so this is kind of how it gets split up uh, between the three. Archelaus gets this, the green is Antipas, uh, the yellow Decapolis is Philip. Uh, the important part is Jerusalem is in Archelaus's territory. Uh, almost everything, and then Galilee, which is is in Antipas's territory. So this gets it. You'll see this show up in the story as it, they start moving around where they're living. So what did the Jews receive from the Romans? They got security, they got limited autonomy, and a new party shows up, the Zealots. The Zealots want to go back to being independent. And so th their basic goal is kill the Romans. That, that is not a great long-term career path. Uh, the Romans, you know, there's a reason that the Roman Empire lasted a thousand years. They were really good policemen. Uh, oh, let me go back to one thing. Uh, Archelaus is only in Matthew for a brief period of time and he disappears. Why does he disappear? He is a horrible administrator. His dad was great, he is horrible. In the 10 years that he's in charge of this pink area, there are five armed rebellions led by messiahs. Five. That the run, once again, what's, what's the two rules? Pay your taxes, keep the peace. He can't keep the peace. There are five armed rebellions that require, as, when you get into the politics, the Herods were only allowed a certain number of armed troops, about 1,800. That's all they had. Uh, the Roman legions were controlled by another person. There were, there were two legions in this area, the, the second and the tenth. Uh, the Romans are not happy when they got to get the legions out and put down things that you should have put down as the governor. So there are five rebellions in ten years. The first four, he survived. The fifth one, he goes, Archelaus goes to Rome to Augustus Caesar and says, you need to appoint me king of this entire area just like my dad. Kick my brothers out. Make me the king. While he's in Rome, the Fifth Rebellion kicks off. And uh, there is a very famous general who is the governor of Syria. Uh, he's, he's actually in the book of Luke Quinius. 
He is the George Patton of this era of Rome. He is appointed to Syria because it's very wealthy. It makes him very wealthy. He has to get his troops marched down from Syria down here, put the rebellion down. Because Archelaus is in Rome, asking for more power. Quintus writes a letter to Quintus and Augustus Caesar were buddies. And so Quintus writes a letter to Caesar saying, hey, I just had to come down from Syria and put this rebellion down for the fifth time. You gotta do something with Archelaus. And so Caesar, being Caesar, does that. He promotes him. You know how, how that works? <laughs> he promotes him to advisor of Caesar, which means you can't leave the city of Rome. If you leave the city of Rome, that's considered rebellion, I'm gonna cut your head off. So, he, so Archelaus spends the rest of his life in Rome. And so this whole area that's now in pink gets a Roman governor appointed. And so that's why during the book of Matthew, you'll see this area under the Romans. It's direct Roman run. So you see, uh, uh, you know, Festus, Felix, and I just blanked on the guy. Uh, the one that washes his hands. Pilate. Pilate, Pilate is like the second or third guy that's appointed to this area. Uh, this is, by the way, not a prime appointment. Nobody likes the Jews. The Romans didn't like the Jews. This was not, there was not a ton of tax revenue here. The good thing about being a governor is that you got to keep part of the tax revenue. So if you were appointed in, say, Egypt, you just, you became an instant billionaire. If you're imported in Syria, you became a billionaire. You got imported in Judea, that's not great. It's, it's an all right appointment, but it's, it's not gonna make you super wealthy. So the, the guys you see appointed here, you, you can kind of see where they sit politically amongst the Romans. They're important enough that they're appointed, but not important enough that they're appointed to a really rich province. And plus the fact, how, how many rebellions did I just say that occurred in 10 years? Right. You do not want to be in a, you do not want to be in a, a province that has lots of rebellions because you've got to spend your money to put down the rebellion. If you do not, what happens to you? You get promoted to Rome or maybe demoted depending on what, what the Caesar feels like at the time. All right. So you basically have the four parties sitting. So this is the stew that Matthew's writing about when Jesus talks. You have four political parties inside the Jews alone, all of which have totally different aims. Uh, the Sadducees want to keep everything the same because they're, they're guys in power. They control the temple. They're the wealthy. They don't want anything to change because they're doing all right. The Pharisees want to go back to the Torah. The, the Sadducees, the temple is the single most important thing to them. The Pharisees, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the most important thing to them. The Essenes are about piety, poverty, community. When you joined the Essenes, you had to give all your stuff up to the Essenes. You gave them to the, the elders of the church. So there's a lot of that actually gets imported into the early church. Uh, and then you have the Zealots. Unknown number of them, there are a lot of them because there are constant rebellions in Judea until 8070. And then we're, we'll talk about that a little later. Bad, bad things happen. Eventually the guys get tired. 
All right, language of the first century. Latin is only spoken by the Romans for official pronouncements. The, the, the Romans don't even speak Latin among themselves. They speak Greek. Uh, Hebrew, pretty much the hardcore Hebrews who are in Judea will speak Hebrew. It's kind of like the thing of, hey, man, I speak Hebrew. You know, that's like I'm a suit, you know, the equivalent today of super Christian. I'm a super Jew, right? I speak Hebrew. The Greek, middle and upper income pl class people. If you, need, if you need to go to the bank or things, you're going to have to speak Greek. Syriac. Uh, is people in Syria, we'll get to that in a little bit. Aramaic is what almost everybody else spoke. Who wrote Matthew? Either Matthew wrote Matthew or disciples of Matthew wrote Matthew. Uh, the evidence for Matthew as author, we have lots of evidence he wrote it. Uh, Papias of Asia Minor, who lived 60 AD, says Matthew composed the oracles in the Hebrew language and each interpreted them. Arrhenius of France said Matthew wrote it. Uh, again, said Matthew wrote it, wrote it in Hebrew. Uh, Petanius, when people got to, uh, he was talking about uh, people going to what we call India now. When they get to India, the church is already there. What book are they reading? They are reading the Gospel of Matthew written in Hebrew. All right, when he says Hebrew, he may mean Aramaic. If you're Greek and you speak Greek, you're up here, right? Greek is the language of the educated. Everything else down here, you don't really care about. If it's Aramaic or Hebrew, it's all the same to you. It's not Greek. Uh, and so he, he, that book may have actually been written in Aramaic. Because if you sent the book to India, part of the Persian Empire, they probably spoke Aramaic. So there's some argument whether or not he actually wrote it in Hebrew or he actually wrote it in Aramaic. Uh, Tertullian also says Matthew wrote it. Uh, Oregon, all these guys basically say Matthew wrote it. So I'm going to come down to the fact that Matthew probably wrote it. Uh, here's what I th think basically re reading some of this. Somewhere in the 40s, Matthew writes the teachings of Jesus in either Hebrew or Aramaic. This is not the book of Matthew. This is the teachings of Matthew. They call it, some people call it the oracles of Jesus. We know Mark probably wrote the book Mark first. Then I think Matthew wrote Matthew, and then I think Luke writes Luke Acts, all before AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem. And then sometime in the 80s, John writes the book of John. And then the question is, who read whom? Uh, we all, I've always kind of grown up thinking each of these guys wrote these books independently and you know, the, the Holy Spirit came down and talked to them and they wrote the book. They are very likely to have read the other guys' books because Luke actually says, I gathered everything I could gather to find the story, to tell you the story. And this is, as you can see in the purple, it's how many of the books tell the same story in the same way. And then the brown, what's unique to Mark, what's unique to Luke, what's unique to Matthew. And then what stories are just in two of them. As you see, Luke has almost nothing that is just in himself. He has a lot that's either him or Matthew or all three. And so uh, there are lots of arguments. There's a book called, possibly a book called Q out there that they all read. It's hard to say. 
But it's pretty clear, I think, to me that Matthew had probably read Mark because when you go through Matthew, we're going to see that he takes the same timeline as Mark. The stories occur in roughly the same order and in the same geography. And same thing for Luke. Uh, so who was Matthew? We know that he's Jewish. He's literate. Uh, why do we know he's literate? Because he's a tax collector. To be a tax collector, you had to be able to do math, clearly. You know, if you're doing tax, you'd be able to do math. You had to speak Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew because he was tax collector to the Hebrews. So he had to be able to speak those three languages. So he's a fairly educated person. Uh, he's also hated by the Jews. A Jew that worked for the Romans, you could not be more hated. Well, actually, you could be a Samaritan. And even that's kind of a toss-up of which one they hated the more. Uh, the audience, uh, primarily Jews, he's writing this book to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And then secondarily, he's writing this to Gentile Christians to understand, help them understand the Jews. Because by the time he writes this book, the church is primarily Gentile. Uh, this is, like I said, this is written in the late 60s. The Gentile church is huge at this point. That's where a lot of the growth has occurred. The Jewish church is about the same size. And so I, one of the thought, yes? Depends on which one you're talking about. The slaves, no. Uh, the Jews were. <laughs> no. And what about the Jews? They were generally the men. The Jewish men were very literate, which is why you see Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire as employees in the Roman Empire because they could read and write and do math. Uh, the theme, the overriding theme of Matthew is Jesus is the new Moses. And you'll, you'll see that come up over and over and over again. It's, yes, he's the Messiah, but at the time of Jesus, the two main themes that they know the Messiah is coming. The question is, is the Messiah going to be David, which means king, rule, big, big kingdom, or is he going to be Moses, which is a leader of the people that is establishing this new God-oriented kingdom? They both think there's going to be an earthly kingdom. The question is, is one going to be military or is one going to be more miraculous? And then there's also a theory at the same time there's going to be two messiahs. There's going to be a military messiah and then there's going to be a priest messiah. What Matthew says is Jesus is the combination. He's all the above. Structure of Matthew, uh, very typical for a book this thing. There's an intro, there's a conclusion. And then there's a, there are five uh, narratives. And so what happens is Jesus moves a little bit, and then he has a bunch of teachings. Then he moves a little bit, he has a bunch of teachings. He does that five times. Five is not an accident. He's written this to the Jews. How many books are there in the Torah? Five. So to a Jew, they would immediately see the five books of Matthew and the five books of the Torah and parallel those. Uh, here's the rest of the teaching schedule if you're interested in that. We almost should be out of time about now. Yep. Uh, so next, so we're just going to walk through the chapters. Obviously, we're not going to go verse by verse because we only have 45 minutes and 16, 45 minutes. No way we're going to make that. So next week, I'm going to do chapter one. Uh, week after that, Stephen's going to finish up one, do chapter two. Uh, Becca's going to do three, four. I gave Stephen the entire Beatitudes Sermon on the Mount in one week. <laughs> I'm going to be out of town, so I, I was able to do that to him. I said, no, sorry. You, you get the Beatitudes. 
teach everything about that in one week and 45 minutes. And so there's the rest of the schedule. And so uh, we'll try to send that out via email. All right, any questions? Let's try to set up kind of where we're going. We're gonna walk through, we're gonna look at this from a very Jewish perspective, uh, which adds a lot of depth. It's not gonna change anything in, in the book, but it's gonna add a lot of depth. All right, see you next week.